Welcome to Insights with Sights, the symphony of scripture, a weekly podcast exploring the themes and contours of the weekly scripture readings. For more information about the podcast or to download the companion notes, please visit slash podcast We now join our host, the Reverend Dr. Christopher Seitz. We should by now have gotten used to the rapidly moving, briskly paced, and immediately Jesus style of Mark's Gospel. Chapter 1 has been Exhibit A. So that when we arrive at the account of events leading up to Jesus' death and the crucifixion itself, overwhelming is just the opposite. Things slow down. Enormous detail is provided, and we are present for the entire careful, distended unfolding of these last events, covering but a few final days of a man's life. The effect is to rivet us to our seats, as befits what is being said and its significance for the message of Mark as a total work. Mark has been called a passion narrative that has a long introduction, a description which tries to convey just this truth about how Mark has proportionalized what he gives us when it comes to the man Jesus Christ waited for his testimony in death. Because it is Palm Sunday and Passion Sunday together, this protracted aspect of Mark's gospel comes to the fore for us in church, giving us potentially 130 verses of text to hear. From the entry into Jerusalem, to the death and burial of Jesus, with a stone rolled against the tomb. And even this leaves out some scenes equally related to the final days of Jesus' life, all of significance in the culminating presentation of Mark's gospel, the cleansing of the temple, the exchanges with religious leaders, and the predictions of coming tribulation. The juxtaposition for this Sunday of the reading concerning the triumphal entry in Mark 12 with the Passion story, beginning with anointing and Last Supper and extending to the flight of disciples, the trial and the crucifixion, this juxtaposition does capture one feature of theological significance, a feature indeed that is embedded in Mark itself, the crowd that hailed Jesus at his entrance into Jerusalem suddenly and genuinely without explanation calls for his death, enrolling itself as bloodthirsty allies against Jesus and leaving Pilate alone as confusedly sympathetic. 
demonic possession, such as we see it earlier in the gospel, appears to overtake the crowd now as Jesus comes to this, his final significant hour. The careful listener may also notice the parallel structure of the entry account with the Last Supper account. In both cases, Jesus tells his disciples what they are to do for him and just how they may anticipate the encounters that will befall him in doing what he asks for. If anyone asks you, and the bystanders do ask, you will find a certain man who will lead you to the owner of the house, and so it happened. Disciples are now indeed taking up their cross, doing their part, at least for now, before things darken beyond their strength. In the first instance, moreover, Scripture is there to bear witness and oversee all that is transpiring. The crowds cry out, Hosanna, straight from Psalm 118, a psalm traditionally associated with pilgrimage and entry. The cry here is addressed to Jesus himself. Hosanna, the cry from Psalm 118, directed there to God. John's optional reading makes a bit more of this scripture overseeing by explicitly identifying the conveyance on a cult with the prophecy of Zechariah. And one can also hear the rumblings of Genesis 49 in the background as well. These are details Mark is content to let speak for themselves at this level. One has a sense from John's reference to an eventual remembering in time, in time to come, that certain things in Scripture were written about him and that we are coming in contact now with one of the most ground-level realities about Jesus, that is, during his life and after his death, the scriptures were bearing witness to him even when it took time to stop and read them and see them delivering precisely this further sense about Jesus. Though it could appear that Jesus is entirely outgunned and abandoned in what we hear this morning at another level, the te text makes it clear he alone knows what's truly going on. And God has prepared by his word from Scripture all that unfolds during these last days and moments, down to details, vinegar to drink, wagging heads, friends at a distance, the parting of garments, the failing strength, the back to smiters, even the haunting cry of dereliction itself. The colt and the hosannas are there too. And of course there is the timing at Passover, significant in clear and deep ways. Jesus did not die on Groundhog Day, but in line with God's word, 
in accordance with the scriptures, where all these details are richly provided. So these events are not out of God's control, and here Jesus and God operate on the same secure ground of agreement and strength in a march into disagreement, weakness, brutality, senselessness, and death. When at the end the centurion says, surely this man was God's son, he has, as it were, been transported away from human sight and into a different plane of perception. He has left the cruel soldiers, the demonic crowd, the bitter thieves, the plotting authorities, a hapless, though powerful, pilot, and he has edged over to the side of the women and Joseph of Arimathea in acknowledging this man was no ordinary executed criminal enrolled with the thousands who suffered this fate. And like a lot of people in Mark's gospel, he likely says more than he himself knows, even in, if in this last testifying he is closer to the truth of the matter than either bellowing crowds or fleeing disciples or those present before this curious, life-changing display of divine power. The absolute control over things unfolding is displayed by Mark, both in God's overseeing word of accordance from Scripture and in the resolute strength of the man Jesus who marches forward into the jaws of injustice, brutality, abandonment, and refuses to stop the frame. He stays awake while they sleep. He receives the kiss of death and forbids retaliation. Let the scriptures be fulfilled. Attacked by false testimony, itself at odds, evokes not a word from him, but silence. When pressed, he cites scripture. In the middle distance, we see a man, Peter, broken, on the wheel of his own vain promises, his strength exposed as fraudulent. Yet no grief or contrition will slow anything down, no matter how heartfelt. They bound Jesus and led him away. Though who is really bound, except everyone but this man? Pilate is confounded, even as no one, no one has the right to speak to him, the ruler of the world, as does a condemned man who answers questions with non-answers. The crowds prefer a crook, finally, to the one who had healed and taught and defeated sickness and death in their presence. Almost in exact proportion to all going wrong, as the world sees it, all is going to plan as God and Jesus have agreed to it. Along the way, Simon, coming in from the country, is enrolled. Jesus never wavering and pressing on as no man could, would, or should before or since has taken its physical toll. And Simon carries his cross. 
His son's names are given in a kind of odd moment of memorandum by Mark. Rufus, many believe, is likely the man mentioned as member of the church in Rome. If so, this would mean at even this darkest hour, Jesus was winning souls. Men not present, but soon to be enrolled, as was Simon that day. Taking up a cross, did he, in anticipation of the one we now carry, a cross behind Jesus Christ in the wake of his saving victory. The final taunts, then, are of a piece. With all that has transpired thus far, what the scriptures are revealing was planned from long ago and calibrated for this great moment. Alone on the human plane and after he has accomplished all God and he have agreed to accomplish, there the centurion confirms the final truth. Here the lesson from Isaiah, chosen for the day, summarizes what did not get said that day, but was being said in its own silent, forward-moving, strength-in-death way. The suffering servant, soon to be himself put to death in Isaiah's prefiguring rendition, foreshadowing our Good Friday, here opens his mouth on behalf of Christ Jesus. I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who pulled out the beard. I did not hide my face from insult and spitting. The Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint. And I know that I shall not be put to shame. For he who vindicates me is near. It is the Lord God himself who helps me. As promised in the opening verses of this passage from Isaiah, the strength inside assault is instruction of a most educational kind prepared in the servant and his testimony long ago for the silent work of, yes, the King of Kings sustaining the weary. The prophet Isaiah has worked his way also into the epistle lesson from Philippians. The name above every name is that name by which God himself swears an oath in Isaiah 45, promising there solemnly that every knee would bow to him, the Lord God. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn. From my mouth has gone forth in righteousness a word that will not return. To me every knee shall bow, and every tongue shall swear. The name above every name, the divine name, the sacred name, the Lord, grounds the solemn prophetic oath, and that name 
is the name bestowed on Jesus Christ in his humiliation, in his death, and in his exaltation, showing him so united to God that to call him Lord is to call on God himself. He who this day emptied himself took on the form of a servant and now is exalted even to God's right hand in triumph. We hope you enjoyed Insights with Sights, the symphony of Scripture. For archived episodes and notes, please visit www.wickliffcollege.ca slash podcast. Thank you, and we hope you tune in again. This podcast is a ministry of Wycliffe College at the University of Toronto.